0: This is Shireen Shafizan for the SRN Assembly. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce our um, podcast series and various topics of interest to the SRN membership. Um, today, I have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Bradley um, regarding central sleep apnea, heart, heart failure, and its treatments. Dr. Bradley is a Respirologist, Professor of Medicine, and Director of the Division of Respirology and the Center for Sleep Medicine and Circadian Biology at the University of Toronto in Canada. He also directs the Sleep Research Laboratories of the United University Health Network, Toronto Rehab Institute, and Toronto General Hospital, and holds the Clifford Nordahl Chair in Sleep Apnea and Rehabilitation Research He is the current principal investigator of a multinational randomized uh, clinical trial, the ADVENT-HF trial, to determine whether treating sleep apnea in patients with heart failure will reduce morbidity and mortality. He holds peer-reviewed grants from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, the Ontario Centers for Excellence in Ontario Brain Injury Federal Development Program, and has published over 240 papers and book chapters on sleep apnea and related topics. It is a pleasure to have Dr. Bradley um, talk to us about sleep disordered breathing, heart failure, and its treatments. So thanks, uh, Dr. Bradley, for agreeing to participate in this podcast. Um, As you know, the recent uh, CERV-HF study that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2015 has caused quite a stir in the sleep community, and I was hoping that you could share with us some of your thoughts on the main findings of this study.
1: Well, it was a very interesting study, and I congratulate the uh, investigators for completing it because I know how difficult it was. Basically they took 1,325, 52 patients rather with uh uh heart failure with a low ejection fraction of forty-five percent or less, and with central sleep apnea defined as at least fifteen apneas and hypopneas per hour sleep, uh with uh greater than fifty percent of them being central. And they randomized them to a control group who received optimal medical therapy for their heart failure, but no therapy for their central apnea and an adaptive servoventilation group who received the ResMed adaptive adaptive servoventilation device, or ASV, uh, to treat their central sleep apnea. They were then followed up for uh, a composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular hospitalizations, um, uh, and um, ICD discharges. And uh, they found that uh, the group who received the ASV actually had a higher all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality rate than the group who was in the than the control group. Um, however, the, the primary endpoint, the composite endpoint, was not significantly different between the two groups. But of course, mortality trumps that, and so uh, they basically sent out a um, bulletin to indicate that patients who were already on their ASV device for central apnea patients with heart failure and low ejection fraction should be taken off, and that patients uh, with this uh, disorder should not be started on their device. So that's the long and short of it.
0: And so, given that uh, you know you have considerable experience in this arena, what do you think? or you would have to speculate because no one really knows at this point. We don't have enough information about what the potential mechanisms could be that ASV may be increasing mortality. Mm -hmm. What would you um, hypothesize maybe some of the mechanisms?
1: Well, there's two uh, main possibilities. The first is that their device, the ASV device made by uh, ResMed, uh, has an algorithm in which the um, default end expiratory pressure is five centimeters of water, and the default um, pressure support is three. So that's a total of eight centimeters of water on every inspiration. Um, We know that if you have have a normal heart and you apply positive airway pressure of any kind, particularly CPAP, your cardiac output will drop because cardiac output is preload dependent in normal individuals. That's been known since 1949 when Cornan first described it. And in fact, in that uh, paper he wrote, he said, therefore, positive airway pressure should not be used in patients with heart failure. So a lot of people have forgotten that. In any case, if you have an elevated wedge pressure and you have a pulmonary congestion, obviously your preload is too high. So if you apply positive airway pressure under those conditions, you can actually augment cardiac output by improving interventricular interactions. And I won't go into the mechanism how that works. But in any case, if your wedge pressure is low and you apply positive airway pressure, you can actually cause a fall in cardiac output. If it's high, you generally cause an increase. So we don't know what the wedge pressures were in their patients, but it's it's possible that the relatively high default pressures on their device cause cardiac output to fall. Now, if that happens, then you'll get a reflex increase in sympathetic nervous system activity. And the excess mortality in their trial was due to out-of-hospital sudden death. And they assume it was... um, uh, arrhythmic. So the possibility is that although they weren't on the ASV device at the time they died, the, um, the reduction in cardiac output caused by the ASV might have activated the sympathetic nervous system and increased the risk of uh, cardiac arrhythmias, but that's all speculation. The second possibility is that uh, with these, again, high default pressures, they may have caused relative hyperventilation, even though the device is supposed not supposed to do that, it might have done that, and if it had done it, it would have made the patients more alkalotic and therefore also subject to uh, higher risk of, cardi- uh, of cardiac arrhythmias so those are the two potential mechanisms I can think of. there may be others, but i 'm not sure what they might be
0: there's also a theory floating around that perhaps in some way central apneas is just a surrogate marker um, and in fact. Or, or or, something in the mechanism is that if we actually treat central apneas, we're doing more harm than good. It's like a protective mechanism that we're now mm-hmm. uh, getting rid of. Um, yes. Any thoughts to that?
1: Yes, that is a possibility, and that, that was first put forth by Matthew Naughton. Uh, basically, and we've uh, actually have some data to suggest that. We published a paper last year in the uh, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine where we showed using a technique called digital plethysmography that uh, when you having obstructive apneas and you have heart failure, your cardiac output drops during the obstructive apnea and overnight actually decreases by about 15%. In contrast, in central apnea, the cardiac output actually goes up during the central apnea and goes down during the hyperpnea. Now, the r- possible reason for that is that the generation of negative intrathoracic pressure which increases preload and reduces and uh, increases afterload at the same time, uh, could have adverse effects on the heart that are reversed by using CPAP. And in fact, we showed that uh, when we reversed obstructive apnea in patients with heart failure, the, the reduction in cardiac output that occurs overnight no longer occurred, so we reversed that. However, in central apnea, um, the cardiac output is actually going up during the central apnea. So it could be that the absence of the negative pressure during the apnea is a compensatory mechanism to unload the heart. Now, the reason I say that is because we do see um, in patients, about oh, 15% of patients with heart failure and, and obstructive sleep apnea will convert to central apnea overnight. And when they do that, um, their uh, the length of their um, chainstokes respiratory cycle goes up and the circulation time goes up, meaning that the cardiac output has fallen. So they convert from obstructive to central apnea in the face of a fall in cardiac output, suggesting that perhaps it's a last-ditch mechanism to try and protect the heart from the negative intrathoracic pressure uh, so that we don't get uh, augmentations, uh, adverse augmentations in uh, preload and afterload. So that's another possibility. And if you take that away, perhaps that could do harm.
0: And um, I'm trying to tie it in with your own experience uh, with the CANPAP study and sort of the, uh, the post hoc analysis that uh, um, you did and it was published several years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Several things come to mind for me. Um, first off, you know, in, I believe, if I recall correctly, that with the CANPAP study, uh, quality of life, especially in the post hoc analysis, quality of life improved in people who. Uh, were who used their CPAP and uh, had an improvement in their sleep-disordered breathing. Whereas in this particular study, even though they documented that ASV was effective in reducing AHI, um, in addition to the mortality signal that we're picking up, the quality of life uh, was also really not improved. Uh, do you think, uh, what do you think is different? What is, what is going on here in terms of CPAP versus ASV or, or treatment of the um, AHI or sleep-disordered breathing?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very difficult question to answer, yeah, but I'll try my best. <laughs> sorry for that. <laughs> well, actually, in the CAMPAP trial, we didn't see an improvement in quality of life. What we did see was a reduction in the apnea hypopnea index. We saw an increase in the ejection fraction with CPAP. We saw an increase in walking distance on the six minute walking t- uh, test. We saw a fall in sympathetic activity measured by plasma norepinephrine. So, physiologically, we definitely saw an improvement. However, we didn't see any improvement in the hospitalization rate or in mortality rate. So physiological improvements not accompanied by um, uh, mortality or morbidity benefits. Um, So it's kind of a wash there. Um, What we did find is in post-hoc analysis that those patients in whom the CPAP reduced the apnea, hypopnea index below the threshold level, again, in the trial, 15, did have a reduction in... uh, mortality and uh, uh, reduction in transplant rate, heart transplant rate, compared to the control group, and the group in whom uh, the apnea hypopnea index was not reduced below 15 on CPAP actually had an increase, suggesting that getting rid of the chainstokes stokes respiration was one of the mechanisms that caused the benefit. Now, that kind of flies in the face of what we find with the CERV trial, because there, of course, we know... Uh, from the data in the New England Journal that they did get rid of the the, uh, chain-stokes respiration and central apnea, and yet they saw an increase in all-cause and cardiovascular mortality. So it's kind of difficult to know why that was. One possibility is that the treatment of um, heart failure has advanced since the CAMPAP trial finished in 2004, However, even then, uh, in our trial, the CAMPAP trial, we had 80% of the patients were on beta blockers and 95% were on ACE inhibitors. So the treatment hasn't changed all that much. So it's difficult to know. It could be that the ASV device used in the CERV trial just applied too much pressure, but it's very difficult to say. So I really, I really don't know why there was such a big difference.
0: Okay, um, so... The exciting news is that there is another trial going on, of which you're the PI, uh, the ADVENT-HF study. So please share with us um, details about this trial and what, I- what are you looking at, um, mm-hmm. your, your primary and secondary endpoints.
1: Yeah. Well, it's similar to the um, CERV-HF trial, in that we're looking at patients with uh, heart failure and systolic dysfunction with an ejection fraction of uh, um, uh, less than 45%. Um, on optimal medication. However, the difference is that uh, we're not just looking at central apnea; we're looking at obstructive apnea because our uh, epidemiological studies show that actu- actually obstructive apnea is more common than central apnea in patients with heart failure. Uh, so, what we're doing is we're using the res- Philips Respironics ASV device, which, unlike the Respironics device, or the sorry, the ResMed device. Um, has an algorithm that treats both obstructive and central apnea so it automatically adjusts the EPAP or CPAP to get rid of obstructive apnea and it automatically adjusts the IPAP to get rid of central apnea so it's a little bit different. The other different thing about it is that it has lower default pressures so for example the default EPAP is four centimeters of water rather than five in the ResMed device and the default pressure support is actually zero as opposed to three in the other device. So theoretically, it should deliver overall lower pressures, but we don't know that for a fact yet, but that's a possibility. In any case, um, we have now randomized uh, 333 patients, and interestingly enough, two-thirds of them have obstructive sleep apnea and only one-third have central apnea. Now, you might say, well, how can you, you know, ethically randomized patients with obstructive apnea, particularly severe obstructive apnea? Well, the answer to that is, uh, in the heart failure population, uh, pa- most patients do not complain of daytime sleepiness, no matter how severe the sleep apnea is. And we believe the reason for that is that the their sympathetic nervous system is so overactivated that it actually is an alerting or uh, sort of an arousal-type mechanism that keeps them alert even though their sleep is being fragmented. And we actually shown that in a couple of studies uh, where we measure sympathetic nervous system activity by different mechanisms. So they lack the usual indication to be treated for obstructive apnea because we know that asymptomatic obstructive apneas from three well-done randomized controlled trials do not benefit from being treated from CPAP, no matter how severe their apnea is. Uh, So we use that observation to be able to randomize these patients to a control group or to uh, ASV. Um, Our endpoint is similar. It is the combined rate of all-cause mortality, cardiovascular hospitalizations, appropriate ICD discharges, and um, new onset atrial fibrillation requiring anticoagulation. Uh, So that's basically uh, our, our trial.
0: And have you experienced any difficulty now enrolling for this trial given the SERVHF hf results that have come out recently? Yes,
1: yeah, that's a good question. Uh, initially we didn't, but uh, subsequently have, and the reason for that is we've had to go back to all of our ethics boards uh, to inform them of the result of the SERV trial and alter our consent form so that patients who come into the trial are aware of those findings. Of course, that takes several months to do, uh, and we haven't, most of our centers have had the new consent forms um, approved, and the consent form basically says, you know, what the results of the serve trial were, and knowing that, do you agree to come into the trial, right? So the okay. patients have to be informed. And as I said, we the, our enrollment has declined as a result of that, but I don't think it's because... Uh, or losing patients or losing interest is simply because of the lag time between making the uh, application to the ethics committees and getting the approval to go ahead. So, for example, in our center in Toronto, uh, we got very uh, quick ethics approval uh, to enroll patients with both central and obstructive apnea as long as they were aware of the SERVE results, and we're continuing to roll at the rate we did before. Other centers are not not as quick, and therefore uh, their enrollment has gone down somewhat.
0: What is the sample size that you're looking for or is this an event driven trial just as the surf trial?
1: Yeah, it's an event driven trial. So we're looking for 514 events. Uh I, I can't tell you how many we have right now. Um actually we're just uh, getting the data ready to send to our data and safety and monitoring committee uh who will then have a look at it and decide whether uh, they recommend continuing the trial or not. So I'm not I'm not sure how many uh, primary endpoints we have at this point.
0: Okay. So here's the million-dollar question. Uh, Given the state of knowledge today and the fact that it's going to be a while yet before we see the results of your trial, what would you recommend uh, for the treatment of patients who have central predominant sleep apnea injection fraction less than 45%? For your own patients, what are you recommending?
1: I recommend no specific treatment for that outside of the out of a, ran, of a randomized control clinical trial. Just as Dr. Pack and his colleagues said in the editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, the reason we're doing this trial is because you see the ASV devices that are on the market that were approved by the FDA and the CE mark in Europe and, and whatnot. The only thing they had to show is that they, you know, got rid of central apnea. They didn't have to show that they improved cardiac outcomes. And I've always been worried about that because I know from our work that you can actually lower cardiac output by applying positive airway pressure unless you do it in in the appropriate setting. Uh, So I would not recommend uh, ASV or other positive airway pressures for anybody with heart failure and uh, low ejection fraction and central sleep apnea at this point. The real $64,000 question is, what do you do about obstructive apnea? Well, with obstructive apnea, obviously, if something's, somebody's symptomatic, they're sleepy, they're waking up choking, they have headaches in the morning, of course, you should treat them because we know that their quality of life will improve. But for those without those symptoms, and that's the majority of patients with heart failure, it's not clear, and I think that the results of the SERVE trial should put all of us in equipoise regarding that and should really think about, uh, you know, if you're near to an ADVENT uh, center, about sending those patients to an ADVENT-HS center to be randomized into our trial to really answer this question, because we really don't know.
0: Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time, sharing your thoughts with us and the ATS-SRN community, Um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again on some other topic.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you.